New London Ledge Light is unique among Connecticut's lighthouses. Not only for its unusual architectural style and history, but also for the persistent legend of its haunting. Its resident spirit, most often referred to as Ernie, has become the most famous lighthouse ghost in the Northeast. His story is told and retold, with several variations by tour guides, folklorists, coast guardsmen, paranormal investigators, and others. Even old-time New Londoners, skeptical of ghosts and hauntings in general, cherish the legend of Ernie as an integral part of town lore. Architecturally, New London Ledge Light, or just Ledge Light for short, is a marvel. Located at the entrance to New London Harbor, where the Thames River meets Long Island Sound, it looks more like an elegant red brick mansion with a lantern cupola atop than a typical lighthouse. It sits about a mile offshore from Ocean Beach Park, upon the underwater southwest ledge, the extreme eastern end of Long Island Sound. Completed in 1909 by Hamilton R. Douglas Company of New London, at a total cost of $93,968.96, its style reflected the architecture of wealthy homeowners in New London, boasting a mansard roof and paired windows in the French Second Empire style. It must have looked right at home with its shorebound neighbors in New London Harbor, until the hurricane of 1938 destroyed them all. The station began operation on the 10th of November, 1909, and was attended by a keeper and two assistants. Keepers would continue its operation until the Coast Guard took over in 1939, with two- and three-man crews who lived at the lighthouse. These would later grow to four-man crews, with a three-man relief, until the place became automated in 1987. Ledge Light has remained unoccupied, since its automation. The mansion-style red brick and granite building is surmounted by an octagonal brick watchroom, which supports the cast-iron cylindrical lantern. The light was originally a fourth-order Fresnel lens, manufactured in Paris, which now sits in the Custom House Museum of Maritime History in New London. The lighthouse was the last on Long Island Sound to become automated when the lens was replaced with a modern VRB25 optic. The loss of the original lens prompted one nostalgic Coast Guardsman to lament, When you replace that light, you've taken the heart out of the lighthouse. Though most trace the legend of Ledge Light's haunting to the death of a mysterious lighthouse keeper of the 1920s or 1930s, at least one source claims that supernatural happenings began much earlier during the lighthouse's construction. Bray Rafferty, a marine biologist of the New London Ledge Lighthouse Foundation and Project Oceanology, said, Over the years, I've heard a lot of stories. Things that go bump in the night. I've heard that even when they were building it, unexplained things were going on. In a conversation between Rafferty and a woman whose grandfather had worked construction on the lighthouse, the woman told of paranormal phenomena that began even before the lighthouse was completed. 
workmen complained of missing tools, unnatural sounds, and weird supernatural shadows. The most commonly repeated legend is that of Ernie. With slight variations, depending on the source, the legend goes like this. Sometime in the 20s or 30s, Ledgelight had a keeper named Ernie, or possibly George. His real name is unknown. Ernie married a young woman half his age, who lived in their home on New London's shore. Apparently, the loneliness of a lighthouse keeper's wife was too much for her, so she ran off with another man, the captain of the Block Island Ferry. Ernie received his last letter from his wife, telling him of her abandonment while he was working his shift at the lighthouse. Consumed with despair, Ernie either committed suicide by leaping from the lighthouse roof, or, according to some, drank himself into a stupor and fell to his death. Despite the fact that no historical record survives of an Ernie ever having been keeper of Ledgelight, the legend blossomed during the period from 1939 until 1987, when Coast Guardsmen began to notice several phenomena with no natural explanation. Among the events attributed by the Guardsmen to Ernie are the making of noises, particularly ghostly footsteps, opening and closing doors, turning the television or foghorn on and off, decks that swabbed themselves, and secured boats being set adrift. I've never gone through a two-week period when I haven't had an experience with Ernie, Coast Guardsman Jerry Sutter told the Harvard Courant in 1978. He went on to explain that faulty wiring could not be the cause of the phenomena, since the lighthouse's wiring had been checked and found to be in good order. Also, footsteps in the middle of the night, when most of the phenomena seemed to have occurred, could not be caused by the house settling, since it sits on a foundation of solid concrete. Terry Wilson, a fireman apprentice stationed with Sutters, agreed. He related how the foghorn had turned on and off by someone or something other than the two men stationed there, and how the light at the top of the lighthouse, run by gears and a weight, had gone off unexpectedly. Sutter's wife had reportedly seen the keeper's specter during one of her visits. After seeing Ernie's shadow, she was so badly spooked that she refused to come out to the lighthouse again. It's interesting to note that only women seem to be capable of seeing Ernie's ghost. Coast Guard officer in charge Randy Watkins related a similar experience in the 1980s, in which his wife Lucretia had spent the night with him in the lighthouse's master bedroom. She had awakened when the door opened and had the eerie feeling of someone in the room staring. So common is the belief in Ernie among the Coast Guardsmen that dissenting skeptics are few. In 1984, one officer in charge, Tim Grant, tried to dispel some of the legend by stating that he did not believe any of the dozens of stories he'd heard from previous guardsmen assigned to the post. I haven't seen or heard anything unexplained, he said. None of the crew has either. Grant, however, 
went on to explain that he'd only been assigned to Ledge Lights a little over a year ago and that we've got a fairly new crew. Grant's opinion was apparently not shared by several of the last Coast Guardsmen to oversee the automation process of the 1980s. The crew claimed that Ernie had become agitated by the automation of the lighthouse. Guardsman Charles Kerr found that papers on his desk had rearranged themselves, while Paul Noakes' bed apparently moved about the room by itself. Noak became so spooked by his moving bed that he took to sleeping on the couch. Automation was officially completed on the 1st of May, 1987. The last Coast Guardsman to leave recorded his final entry in the log. Rock of slow torture. Ernie's domain. Hell on earth. May New London Ledge's light shine on forever. Because I'm through. Ernie's spirit is not the only one said to haunt Ledge Light. Members of the New London Ledge Lighthouse Foundation, particularly marine biologist Bray Rafferty and treasurer Jerry Olson, have uncovered other strange happenings and accounts in their research. Rafferty tells of a shipwreck that occurred a decade before Ledge Light was built. The doomed ship went down at nearby Black Ledge, killing perhaps a dozen aboard. Apparently, witnesses at the time saw a young man who successfully made it to shore frantically searching for his new bride. Grief-stricken, he was seen to gradually enter the water and disappear forever. Olson tells of a separate incident that may have occurred in 1913 or 1914, in which a sailboat containing a man, a woman, and their daughter capsized in the sound during a fierce storm. According to local tradition, the lighthouse keeper saw the man and woman swimming desperately in the dead of night, and successfully brought them to the lighthouse. He was shocked and saddened to hear that their daughter had been lost in the storm. The next day, the keeper was astonished to find that the couple had vanished without a trace. Even more strange, visitors from shore told of having rescued a young girl who told them a similar story in which her parents had been lost. The shore folk told the keeper that the girl had also disappeared the following morning, without explanation. Either of these tales may explain enduring accounts of spirits observed in or around the lighthouse, always apparently searching for a loved one. Olson claims to have had a personal encounter with a female spirit he's dubbed the Lady of the Ledge, in which he heard her distinctly clear her throat while his back was turned. He says that he saw a sudden image in his head of an attractive middle-aged woman. When he turned, the spirit had vanished. For more than 20 years, paranormal personalities, investigators, mediums, and the like have visited Ledge Lights and contributed their own tales to the cycle of lighthouse legends. Ghost psychologist Dr. Roger Pyle and his wife, who acted as a medium, claimed to make contact with the real spirit haunting Ledge Light in 1981. According to the Piles, the spirit was that of a keeper named John Randolph, who'd committed suicide by slashing his own throat following an argument with his wife. Unfortunately, 
no record of a keeper named Randolph exists. Another paranormal investigator claims that Ledgelight is a vortex of supernatural activity, centered upon the northeast corner. Her feeling is that whatever spirits remain are harmless and benign. Ledge Light isn't the only haunted lighthouse along Connecticut's shore. Less well-known, though equally well-documented, is the legend of Penfield Reef Light's ghostly keeper. The Penfield legend has a more solid foundation in fact, beginning with the 1916 drowning death of its keeper, Fred A. Jordan. Although Fred Jordan wasn't the first lighthouse keeper at Penfield, the legend of its haunting certainly begins with him. Wishing to spend Christmas ashore with his family, Keeper Jordan attempted to row to shore at Black Rock Harbor on the afternoon of December 22, 1916. He left assistant Keeper Rudolf Eiten in charge of Penfield Reef Light. Watching from the lighthouse, Eiten was a helpless witness to the tragedy that followed. Despite high seas and strong winds, Jordan felt the effort to join his family for the holiday well worth the risk. He barely made more than 100 yards from the lighthouse when his boat capsized, about 20 minutes past noon. He signaled for Eiten to come to his aid, which Eiten tried desperately to do with a smaller boat. But by then the waves had become higher and increasingly rough. By the time Eiten got the tiny boat going, it was 1pm, and already too late for Jordan. He had drifted a mile and a half away to the southwest. Newspapers reported the tragedy days later even though Jordan's body would not be found for another three months. Jordan was 35 years old, with a wife and two children. Rudolf Eiten replaced Jordan as head keeper, remaining in the position for the next 10 years. He and his two assistants, Walter Harper and Arthur Bender, claimed to have witnessed ghostly manifestations of Fred Jordan on several occasions. When asked about these phenomena, the men often quoted an old saying that what the reef takes, the reef will give back. The first reported manifestation took place only days after Jordan's death. Keeper Rudolf Eiten was asleep during one of the worst storms of December 1916. One of his assistants was on duty. He awakened to a feeling that someone was in the room with him. He later recalled... Sitting up, I distinctly saw a gray, phosphorescent figure emerging from the room formerly occupied by Fred Jordan. It hovered at the top of the stairs and then disappeared in the darkness below. Eiten followed the figure downstairs to where his logbook lay open. The figure was gone, but the book lay open to the page on which Eiten had transcribed the event of Jordan's drowning. At least two other incidents are credited to the spirit of Fred Jordan. One is that of a yacht that ran into trouble on a nearby reef and was led to safety by a mysterious man in a rowboat, who afterward vanished. The second incident involved two youths whose boat capsized. In danger of drowning, the two boys were rescued by a mysterious unknown man, who likewise vanished. Both of these accounts seem to originate from an undated newspaper article in the Bridgeport Public Library. 
The incident with the yacht probably refers to the 1953 explosion and sinking of the Privateer 2, about two miles from Penfield Reef. The unidentified skipper was eventually rescued by Coast Guardsmen from the lighthouse. The incident with the two youths most likely refers to the rescue of teenagers James Janes and Richard Delvetco in 1966. The boys were eventually rescued after their makeshift raft capsized, once they'd been spotted by lobster fisherman Don Whittle, who contacted the Coast Guard. The specter of Fred Jordan has reportedly been seen flitting among the rocks, or leaning upon the rail surrounding the lantern. He's reportedly been seen among the jagged black rocks, swaying as if in agony. The spirit of Fred Jordan does indeed haunt Penfield Reef. The haunting seems to be a benevolent one. In death, as in life, he continues to rescue endangered youths and yachtsmen, and to ensure that the all-important beacon shines to warn mariners traversing the sound. Penfield Reef Light is automated now, like the rest of its brethren, and vacant of living occupants. But whether the lighthouse is entirely vacant is, of course, a matter of debate. Do you have an earliest lighthouse memory? Yeah, I have a couple. I mean, I think my first one is definitely Cape Lookout, you know, the Outer Banks area there. We, you know, we were both fortunate enough to have access to that area and spent a lot of time out on the water. Uh, Me in particular, I know I spent a lot of time, you know, doing some offshore fishing and stuff like that. But we'd also go and get, you know, we go and have picnics at the beach, you know, and we were lucky that uh, we had a boat so we could go and, and get out there whenever we wanted to. So I think definitely Cape Lookout is a very early one. But also, I distinctly remember being pretty young and taking a trip to Marblehead and seeing that on Lake Erie Hmm. uh, at a fairly young age. So kind of my two loves, um, the Graveyard of the Atlantic and uh, the Great Lakes, kind of Hmm. early on, you know, getting into both of those. What do you think is the appeal of lighthouses? I think it's like, it's the uniqueness, right? Like they're not like anything else. I think it's also kind of opening up your, maybe your little world to a bigger world, right? Like they're part of commerce. They're part of navigation. It's that taming of nature that we see in the 17 and 1800s. It's, you know, that idea of some permanence that we need to protect this space and, you know, make it navigable Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can bring ships in and out of these different places I think there's like there's a certain romance to that for sure. I think there's also some sadness attached to it, right? Like they don't build them in a spot where there's not danger necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, Cape Lookout is where it is because it's an exceptionally dangerous stretch of coastline. Um, Cape Hatteras, all those different lighthouses, you know, around the graveyard of the Atlantic, like that appeal of there's a little danger involved with it, right? There's also the romance of like the lighthouse keeper. You know, it's it's a it's a lonely job. I think there's a little, there's sort of a poetry to that, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the movie, The Lighthouse. It's (laughs) it's that, right? You know, there's also, there's a certain comfort aspect to it, right? Even if it's a subconscious thing, is that, you know, even when you're out in the most rugged part of the shoreline, if you can see a lighthouse, you know that there's someone else there. Mm -hmm. You know that, like, civilization is there, even in the most primitive forms. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine being a sailor in the, the 1850s and, you know, there's no internet, there's no wireless communication. 
that lighthouse is your only link to the mainland. Like that's all you have to link you to that. And I think some of that appeal passes down, right? Like that you understand that these are important structures. They're a pain to build, right? Like we wouldn't build them if they weren't needed. And I think that that's just a very attractive thing to people. So more to the business of the episode itself. Why do you think lighthouses are particularly attractive as settings for ghost stories? Um, I think we, we did kind of hit on that in the previous one, right? It's, it's that tragic danger aspect to it mm-hmm. that a lot of these things are built at places where there's frequent shipwrecks. The act of being a lighthouse keeper is dangerous. Mm-hmm. The loneliness and the sadness of like the mental side of it of, you know, are you going to, are you going to go crazy at this lighthouse mentally? You know, are you fit enough to, to do it? There's a, a certain paranormal thing there where you can only rely on yourself so there's a, there's a lot around that, I think. I mean, obviously, the ideas of the tragedy and death that are involved in so many of these locations, I think it's a natural pairing, right, to, to make it for, for ghost stories. And not only that, you have so many of these lighthouses where people live their lives. You know, they had their children there, their wife's there, and you have all of the triumphs and tragedies that go along with living your life, you know, happening at this lighthouse where there's a lot of other things going on, too. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it's... Just like anything else, it's they're lived in, right? They're, they're, they're important to what's going on around them. And I think that'll always attract those kind of stories. This is episode two of our Dead Reckoning bonus series. The stories you heard at the beginning of the episode are from Connecticut's Seaside Ghosts by Donald Carter. Given the nature of our show... Lighthouses play a key role in many of the stories we discuss. Sometimes it's an absence of a light in a dangerous area that contributes to a wreck. An example of this is the wreck of the SS Valencia, which spurred the building of a lighthouse and survival trail on Vancouver Island. Sometimes it isn't the light itself, but rather the keepers who have a role to play in the story of a wreck. The best example we have from the show is Ben Germain from way back in episode 4, without whom it's possible that no one makes it off of the Admela alive. About 1,500 lighthouses have been constructed since the United States became an independent country. The most in operation at one time is about 850, with the high point coming around the year 1910. In Lighthouse Symbolism in the American Landscape, Kevin Blake writes... Few structures built for a utilitarian purpose can evoke such complex human emotions as lighthouses. Anachronisms from a bygone system of maritime navigation that are now historic treasures, inspiring mystical feelings. Some Americans see their lighthouses as equivalent to European castles, structures of permanence worth preservation to tie together multiple generations and provide a focal point for cultural memory. Alan S. Miller expands on the utilitarian purpose of lighthouses in early American history, writing that Lighthouses were important early instruments and manifestations of an expanding federal authority and presence. Establishing a federally run system of lighthouses on the Atlantic coast was one of the first major endeavors of the young nation, with Alexander Hamilton and his treasury being given the task due to its ties to commerce. Miller explains, 
Many Americans recognized not only that this extensive network of navigational aids was an important means of regulating commerce among the states and with foreign countries, but also that their imposing, yet benevolent, presence along the coast was an appropriate means of projecting the presence and power of the new federal state. In 1789, 13 existing lighthouses were federalized by an act of Congress. One of these lights was at New London, Connecticut, the location of our first story, though this lighthouse stood in the harbor rather than out on the ledge. Although only 13 lighthouses were part of this original federalization, more would be built in the coming years. In fact, the first proposal for a federal works project was for a lighthouse at the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. This would serve to improve the link between northern and southern ports, as there was, at the time, a massive gap in light coverage between Cape Henlopen in Delaware and Charleston, South Carolina. Many of these new lighthouses were modeled on New York's Sandy Hook Lighthouse. Quotes, because the Sandy Hook Lighthouse was recognized as a thoroughly successful execution of the form, the emulation of this tried-and-true model was an obvious means for avoiding controversy. In this respect, Sandy Hook's design met the requirements of political and strategic expediency. In regard to the light at Cape Henry, Virginia, Miller says... By building a monumental lighthouse that was likely to stand for centuries, the United States was making a statement about its own stability and intended longevity. Lighthouses had historically been placed in or near city harbors, attracting ships to a certain location for the benefit of the local economy. This new string of lighthouses served a different purpose, occupying remote and often rugged terrain with the purpose of steering ships away. Quote, this contextual reorientation of lighthouses constitutes critical evidence of deliberate state-building. Lighthouses were instruments that would solidify the economic bonds between the several states while enhancing federal standing. In 1789 the United States had only 13 lighthouses. By 1800, this had risen to 23. There were 70 lighthouses by 1822, 204 in 1838, and by 1852, 331. With so many lighthouses in operation for so long... It's no surprise that they come with their share of spooky stories, but we'll save the rest for another time.